in that way. So uh, this summer we've been going through the book of James, and it's been said uh, from the pulpit a number of times um, that James is difficult. Right? James is kind of in your face. He really confronts us a lot. He really challenges us, challenges us a lot. Um, he kind of tells us things we don't want to hear, but things that we need to hear. And so last week, if you were here, James put rich people on blast, right? Ungodly rich people on blast. He, he essentially says that um, uh, if you use your riches to oppress other people, uh, or if you use your riches or un, in ungodly ways, that that is wrong, right? He doesn't call out being rich as the issue. He calls out the way you use your money as the issue. And he tells these people in, in, in a pretty strong verbiage, he, he tells them to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming their way. And he then transitions to, to our passage today where um, he goes from talking to ungodly rich people to talking to Christians who are suffering, right? Christians who are being oppressed, um, uh, most likely because of these rich people, right? And, and he brings up this idea of patience, patience. I think uh, most, if not all of us, would agree that patience is a good thing. Patience is something uh, we ought to have. Patience is something we ought to want to grow in. I think of some of the most content, most satisfied people I know. They're also the most patient people I know. And what's kind of funny is, is you look at the world around us, you look at the way our lives are structured, uh, they're structured in such a way that we don't have to be patient very often. Right? You no longer have to get into your car and drive to Blockbuster and pick out your movie and bring it home and watch the previews to get to the movie. And God forbid the person before you that rented it didn't rewind it. Right? We, uh, you want an answer to almost any question, you can just kind of glance down at your Apple Watch and ask Siri, and you got an answer to anything in half a second. Right, think about how far we've come. Anyone, anyone here remember Cha-Cha? No? Cha-Cha? One Cha-Cha. Okay. Cha-Cha, you, you text, this is before smartphones were a thing. You text 242-242, any question you want, and it goes to, get this, literally a real, live, breathing person. And the irony is they probably Googled your question anyways, and they texted you back two to three minutes later. The service is completely obsolete now, right? Years and years and years ago, it stopped functioning, in part because there was a faster way, right? Smartphones became a thing. We can Google what we want ourselves. We didn't have to exercise this muscle of patience. I was reminded of the need for patience this past weekend uh, when I, my wife and I, Ashlyn, we moved, right? And, and as many of you know, moving in the city just stinks, right? September 1, that's why we've got to go help people. Mark it down. Uh, moving in the city just stinks, right? And, and, and um, that's already stressful enough. And pretty much from 12 o'clock onward, this is a Sunday after church, I'm already tired. Everything that could have gone wrong kind of went wrong kind of did. All right, so we pull up to the rental truck company. And the first thing I noticed, there is definitely not a truck the size we reserved here. Okay, well, we're a little early. Maybe, maybe someone's returning theirs. And I get the, up to the desk and give them my reservation number. And, and they're like, oh, you're... You're actually scheduled to pick up in a location like 10 miles from here. So I scroll through my email, that's not right, uh, and show them my reservation. And they're like, oh, we changed your reservation. We just didn't let you know. And not only are you scheduled to pick up 10 miles from here, uh, we, we moved your 20-foot uh, U-Haul van down to a cargo van. On top of this, uh, um, my wife, Ashlyn, she was taking Adelina, our daughter, um, to someone who so graciously offered to watch her for the afternoon and into the evening, so we, we're going to have the ability to, to move and then even unpack some. 
But on the way to her house, there's literally a parade going around her house. And so Ashlyn can't even get within a mile to, to that person's home. And so she drives around for 45 minutes to an hour, uh, going block after block after block, trying to figure out how to get there. And she ends up at the same place she started. She heads home. Right? And, and, and luckily, I mean, we had lots of friends that helped us. Um, and if a lot of you are here, thank you for helping us. Uh, we had someone else that jumped in to watch Addy. Um, and so uh, two cargo vans and five SUV loads later, we made it. Right, we made it. When I look at that scenario, every bone in my body, everything in that scenario says, you have a right not to be patient. You have a right to be impatient. And I think we would so easily uh, uh, admit that, but what we won't say is, actually, the best thing to have in that scenario is patience. Right? We want patience as a virtue, but the reality is our lives aren't structured, that we have to use it. And, and sometimes for good reason, right? There are things that are just more efficient. I get that. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about this idea of patience this week, and just kind of pondering it, there's, there's one area of life one kind of circumstance, one kind of thing that you can't shortcut. That if you're impatient, it's only going to be worse. And that's suffering. There's no shortcut to suffering. But we try. Right? What's the first step in the grieving process? Denial. I think, in part, it's because we see a situation, something terrible happens, and, and we say, that looks hard. I don't want to have to go through this. I don't want to have to use the patience to get through this. In suffering, there is not a way to be impatient and to get to the other side and be in a better spot. And so James, in this context of talking to Christians that are suffering, he reminds them to be patient because God is in control. And that's kind of our main idea, big point for the day. If you remember one thing, it's this. Christian, you can be patient in suffering because God is in control. Um, and before I lay out a map of kind of where we're headed, a quick note about suffering. Because I would hate for someone to walk in here and, and you, you feel like you're not suffering in like an obvious way. There's not anything massive going on in, this, in your life. And you think, well, this isn't for me then. But suffering has kind of two sides to the to, to its coin, right? There, there are the more obvious forms. Death, illness, divorce, job loss. All these things are obviously suffering. But I think we actually kind of cut uh, God's work and the way he uses things in our lives short if we don't also say a rough season at work, a tough relationship with your boss, that can be suffering too. Right? Uh, uh, going through relational issues with roommates or, or friends, that's a form of suffering too. Saying goodbye to a friend as they move across the country, saying goodbye to Kelly as she moves back to Florida, that can be suffering too. Right? Heck, living in a place like Boston, right, you're surrounded by people that aren't Christians, as great as Boston is, but you're surrounded by people who just don't share these kind of same, uh, uh, the same godly worldview that you do. That can be a form of suffering as well. Michael Emlett, he's a biblical counselor. He wrote the book called Saints, Sufferers, Sinners. And his thesis is that you are all three of those things at the same time. You are experiencing all three of those things at the same time. In some way, shape, or form, you are suffering today. And so I say all that to say that the scripture that we just read 
If you walked in with, with your heavy boots on, you're going through it. God has something to say to you very clearly. If you walk in and, and, and you're, you're, you're suffering in a way that's less obvious, please know it's not any less real. And that God still has something to say to you today. So again, our main point is you can be patient in suffering because God is in control. We're going to look at this in two simple ways. Why and how. Why and how. Three whys, two hows. Why? Why? Why should we be patient in suffering? What, another way to ask it, what hope do we have in suffering? What kind of things can we um, cling on to as we try to be patient in our suffering? And then how? What is the manner in which we should be patient in suffering? James gives us a few things that, that ought to uh, direct our conduct in patience and suffering. So first, why? James gives us three reasons, and those are God has done something, God is doing something, and God will do something. You have to bear with me. We're going to jump around a little bit. We're not going to just go straight through the text. But God has done something. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me again. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, James is saying, look to the prophets as an example of patience and suffering. Look how they handled it. But then he also says, look what God did. If you know anything about them, they're not people we would envy. And almost envy. someone, Job is not the first book of the Bible I go to. Right? But, but James, in his wisdom, um, and he's thinking about patience and suffering, he's like, this is the perfect example. And, and, and Job, um, if you know his story, he's a man who's upright before God. He had um, wealth. He had uh, a great family, and it was all stripped away from him completely, almost in an instant. Other than Christ, probably uh, the person who suffered the most in the Bible. And James says, look to him, because we have the last five chapters of Job, and we know how it ends. Right? Job, he didn't handle the situation perfectly, but he still endured pretty well. He was still pretty steadfast. He had his moments. But overall, he was patient in suffering. And at the end, God restored everything back to him. Right? He got a family. He got his wealth. He got all these things back. Take Jeremiah. The weeping prophet. Right? He's called the weeping prophet. Why? Because he's weeping all the time. <laughs> Look at his story. Right? So God calls Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. Jeremiah, uh, before you were in the womb, I appointed you to be a great prophet. Jeremiah's like, okay. Me, a great prophet? Oh, yeah. I'm on board with this. God goes on to tell Jeremiah, uh, he chose him to be set up over nations and, and to both destroy and build up kingdoms. I... I, I can, all right, all right. You know, maybe that destroy thing, that seems like a little more military than me, but like, I'm on board. Cool, cool, cool. Now, Jeremiah says, God, go tell your people, go tell your king that your nation is about to be utterly destroyed, that uh, another nation is going to come in and they're going to enslave you. Right, the scripture says the land will be a desolation, the earth will mourn, and, and the heavens will be dark. Whoa. Whoa, I didn't, whoa, I was thinking you could do like, 
You remember that bread from heaven, from the skies kind of thing, and like, you know, you split that sea in half, and like, that, that water came out of that rock, like those things. I was kind of thinking, like, that's, that's what I wanted to do. But that's the message God tasked Jeremiah with. And so for years and years and years, Jeremiah is relaying this message to God's people in different ways, shapes, or forms. Right? Over and over. And no one listened. No one listened. I have to imagine Jeremiah didn't want to be very patient. Jeremiah probably lived a life of, of suffering. I have to imagine he probably didn't have as many friends. Right? If someone walked in here and said, this whole church is going to be completely uh, desolate and, 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 and this, everything's going to be dark and, and crazy, like, will we be friends with them? Like, I don't know, I'm not inviting them over to dinner first. But Jeremiah was patient, and we can look back on that in such a way that it encourages us in our quest to be patient. Because God did something. Right, so Jeremiah wasn't able to see what would become of his, his prophecies and his writings and his life. He probably didn't know that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, we, on a Sunday in 2022, yes, 2022, would be talking about his story. He probably didn't know that, that, that his life and in his work and his words would be in the Bible, the living word of God, that will endure to the end of time. He probably didn't know that. But he was patient in his suffering. And God did something else, too. Something bigger than Jeremiah. You might have kind of caught on to some of Jeremiah's story and, and what was going on with the kingdom of Judah at the time, but again, um, part of Jeremiah's prophecy was that this nation would come in and, and, and enslave uh, the people of Judah, would enslave God's people. And the king at the time when this happen, happened was Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah prophesied to King Jehoiakim uh, not long before it happened that this would happen. He didn't listen to him. And, and tradition, extra-biblical historical sources say that um, Babylon enslaved Jehoiakim and they isolated him. So he wasn't kept with the rest of his people. He was separated from his wife. His ability to have a family, his ability to have children, the ability to carry on his line hung in the balance. But God did something. And so uh, eventually, uh, a tradition has it, historical sources say that, that Jehoiakim found favor with the queen of Babylon, who influenced the king of Babylon, and they allowed his wife to join him in isolation. What do they do? They have children. One of their kids' names is Shealtiel. Now, why is this important? Because Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, who was the father of Abiad, who was the father of Eliakim, who was the father of Azor, who was the father of Zadok, who was the father of Achim, who was the father of Eliad, who was the father of Eleazar, who was the father of Mathan, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Jesus. Do you think Jeremiah knew? Do you think God's people knew in the middle of their suffering he was bringing about their Savior? In Jeremiah's patience, God was doing something. In Jeremiah's patience, God did something, which gives us hope and assurance for now. We can look back at the scriptures, we can look back at people that had to be patient for God. We can look back at people who had to be patient in suffering. We can look back and we can say, I know the stories of old. We can look back and say, I know the God who was faithful through and through. He was faithful then, and that can encourage us to be 
that he is going to be faithful now. And that can help us be patient in suffering now. So God did something, and now God is doing something. A good contemplative uh, question that I kind of wish I asked myself more often um, is, what is God doing in my life? Maybe some of you have an answer very quickly. I'd argue most of us, we have to think about it. Maybe we don't know. Right? Because it's hard to see. And we're, we're visual creatures by, by nature, right? How do I know this stand will hold my iPad? Well, most of all, it's because I can see it. Right? I, can, I can see that this metal is, is of decent quality. I can see that this is not moving up and down. I can feel it. I, I, I know because I can see it that it's probably, I'm going to trust it to hold my iPad. Right? That's how I would trust this stand. And we often expect the same thing of God. Right? So if I can't see it, if I can't feel it, he's not working. If, if I don't have eyes on or, or my heart attuned to what, what God is doing, he's not doing anything at all. So we think. Right? This, 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 uh, look at the illustration James gives. Right, it refutes that entirely. He talks about that of a farmer and a fruit. Do you know some fruit trees, after you plant them, take 15 years until they start showing fruit? And it's funny, we, you just say you take a fun trip to a farm, whatever, I don't know if that's fun or not. Uh, and, and the farmer's like, hey, I planted a bunch of trees here, but you see nothing. He's like, yeah, I put the, the seed in the ground. You wouldn't think nothing's happening there. You wouldn't see it, but you would know things are happening under the ground. You would know that seed is growing and going to sprout. You would know, even though you didn't see it. This very thing led John Piper to say, God may be doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. For many of us, it's God may be doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're not aware of any of them. So what do you do about that? What do you do about that? Paul in 2 Corinthians says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Though our outer self is wasting away, though we're dying, though we're suffering, though we're wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is doing something. Though we are suffering, God is doing something. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the important part. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. You're suffering. You don't know why. Or you're suffering. You know why. You understand what's going on. Right? You, you, you have a chronic illness that doesn't allow you to live life to the fullest in the way you want to. The scripture says, don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. God, his compassion, his mercy, his love. Sometimes, I, I think, uh, some of us in this room, we've, we've, had, we've had situations and scenarios and times in life where we have a front row seat to all of that. And we can see it clearly. But then other times, we just don't see anything. But we have to remember, the scripture says, don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. Again, verse 11, look at the verb he uses when he talks about God's compassion and mercy. He says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
So he's talking about this in the context of the prophets and how God was compassionate and merciful to them, but he uses a present tense verb. So it's not just God was compassionate and merciful back then. It is he is compassionate and merciful now. So in your deepest, darkest moments, you can trust God is compassionate and merciful. The scripture says, He's going to come back. Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can be patient in suffering because God's coming back. I mentioned earlier, Ashley and I, we have a, a, a seven-month-old daughter, Addie, Shout out to Addie, who crawled for the first time this week. Uh, yeah. Uh, Addie, is, so she's, she's crawling. She's with all kinds of mobile now. And, and it's funny, like, I think about um, just all the parenting advice people have given us along the way. It's all great. But the one thing that always, like, cracked me up, it was just, like, everyone was always, like, wait till they get mobile. And I was, like, okay, I get it. She's going to move. Every second of the day, she's in danger now. <laughs> right? She's, like, falling over. She's smacking her heads and all kind of things. And, like, it's just nuts. Right? And one of her favorite times to be mobile and crawl around is at night in her crib when she should be sleeping. And so um, this, this week, um, late at night one time, we have like a camera in her room so we can see, but I heard her kind of making some noises. She was playing. And, and so I pull up the camera and I look at it. And this, this, this seven-month-old child has her uh, feet planted in the middle of the mattress, kind of in the middle, and her arms extended, standing up, holding on to the railing. And... I don't know what gave first, whether it was her arms or her legs, but this child like belly flopped and face planted. And so, I, I mean, if you know, you know, like there's the split second, like, okay. And then there, she's like, no, I'm not okay. <laughs> and she starts crying, right? She, she's losing her mind. She's in a lot of pain. Like, it, it looked pretty painful, actually. Like, I, I saw it happen, right? And so, uh, she's in pain. She's crying. She can't do anything about it. And so, of course, I get up, and I'm, I'm rushing over there. As I'm rushing over there, what am I thinking? It's not, don't worry, Addie, someone who's strong enough to lift you out of your crib, someone who's capable and understands the situation is coming. It's, don't worry, Addie, your dad is coming. Your dad is coming. Now, I know for a fact there are some of you in here who are dealing with inexplicable, unfair, untimely death of friends. I know for a fact there are some of you in here dealing with the painful loss of a parent. I know there are some of us in here, we, we deal with crippling anxiety, right? We can't make a decision, and we think everyone's judging us because we can't make a decision, and then our just anxiety cycles and cycles and cycles. For some of us, it's just the pressures of life. Wake up, get the kids ready, go to work, come home, try to just have some time with your husband and your wife, watch TV to numb everything, wake up, do it again. It's just too much. It's too heavy. The scripture says your dad is coming soon. 
Be patient. The Lord Jesus is coming back. Be patient. The one who loved you all the way to death and knows everything you're going through and went through it much worse than you and can sympathize with what you're going through. He's coming back for you. And when he comes back, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying, because the former things are passing away. Because the things that caused pain and suffering are being done away with. So just hold on. He's coming back. He's coming back for you. So James tells us to be patient because God is in control. Be patient because God has done something, God is doing something, and God will do something. That's the three whys. Last thing I want to talk about is how. How to be patient. What is the manner in which we are to be patient? Um, James, he prohibits two things in our passage um, that we so easily do while we're impatient, right? Grumbling and swearing. Grumbling and taking an oath. So you might notice um, so far in James's letter, he has um, a, kind of a knack for calling out sins that you and I might consider kind of minor. He kind of calls out sins that I would say definitely aren't first level, probably not second level, and maybe not even third level. I think some of these things are fourth level sins. That's how I think. Don't think like that. He calls out grumbling and taking an oath. Verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another's brothers, so that you might not be judged. For honest, grumbling is easy. The word grumble translates as sigh deeply, or, get this, groan and groan in impatience. And James adds against one another. So in other words, don't complain about one another. There's a fair amount of debate among scholars as to why grumbling and swearing we could at least acknowledge that the grumbling is an act of impatience. Right, so James in part is saying, uh, uh, be patient, but also avoid impatience by not grumbling. It's so easy, right? We, we use the phrase, uh, can I just vent for a minute? We think that absolves us of everything. But then we take it too far, right? Because we go beyond looking for godly, wise counsel. We go beyond looking for advice about a person or a scenario. We go beyond the, the desire to talk about this person or this situation. So remind us how serious this is. He says that grumbling incurs the judgment of God, and that judgment is near. Now, James has said things like this a couple of times. He says it in the swearing verse later, right? He says, you will fall under condemnation. Sometimes I wish uh, James was like Paul. Right? Paul says uh, that idolaters, adulterers, and thieves, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We kind of get that. Right? We can at least in, in theory understand that. But then James says a little bit of grumbling. Right? A little bit of grumbling incurs the judgment of God. It's a reminder that no matter what it is, sin is not small. And I'm inclined to believe that, that one of Satan's favorite things is when God's people underestimate their own sin. When God's people think that their sin is, is small, as if it isn't just a mark against a holy God. This passage, and really the whole of James, reminds us there's no such thing. 
He also tells us in verse 12 not to swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this verse seems more out of place than the last one about grumbling, right? What what are you doing, James? We're talking about patience and suffering. What what does taking an oath have to do with any of this? But again, just as grumbling intertwines with patience, so does taking an oath. Right? When I say uh, swearing, I don't mean uh, like cussing, right? Taking an oath like, I swear I will do this, I swear on this that I will do this, I swear on this that I am that. And the Mount says something very similar. And actually, fun fact, um, James memory. Or no. Let it, as much as it is in your control, the truth of your statement, the integrity of your character, be dependent on an oath. Be dependent on you swearing by something. Right? In other words, it shouldn't matter uh, 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 whether you take an oath or not. Your words should be true either way. And it's interesting, I, I, I haven't thought through this yet, and I really didn't find anything in my reading, but he says the words above all, which I find kind of odd. Right? Above all, do not swear. It seems like in the context of what he's talking about, this wouldn't be the most important thing. But when you boil it down, when you boil it down to a simple point, what he's really saying is just be truthful. Above all, be truthful at your word. Now, how this ties into patience, um, I, I think uh, some of us, we kind of, you know, we, we try to weasel our way out of things a little bit, right? And how many of you, whether directly saying it like this or not, or in some other way, shape, or form, it's just like, God... I swear, if you do this, I will follow you for the rest of my life. If you give me this, I swear, I will worship you. I will do all these things. And, and you might not have said that directly, but in some way, shape, or form, some way, shape, or form, our actions so constantly convey that message. But that's swearing in the way that James prohibits. Right? It's an act of impatience to get what you want quicker. And once again, telling us the weightiness of every sin, uh, James tells us that if we swear in ways like that, we fall under condemnation. Now, Christian, does that mean the second you take an oath, the second you grumble, that you're going to be judged by God and that you're under condemnation? No. No, it doesn't. For those of us that are in Christ, there is forgiveness. For those of us that have trusted in the perfect life, uh, the, the, uh, the death that we deserved and, and the resurrection of Christ and the lordship of Christ, there is forgiveness in that. But what the scripture does say about it in James chapter 1, ironically, is that sinful desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Grumbling and swearing are serious things because when fully grown, they bring forth death. Grumbling and swearing, swearing might not be the full tree, but they're certainly the seed. And so in our attempts to be patient in suffering, don't grumble. Don't, don't swear, take an oath, try to kind of find a quick way out of things. As we close and we think about this idea of, of just being patient in suffering, um, I think we need to acknowledge that it's not always enjoyable, right? 
Just because uh, you're able to exude patience and suffering doesn't make that suffering any easier, necessarily. It doesn't make that suffering any less real. It doesn't numb you to the pain of what's going on. But it enables us to pause and ask God, what are you up to? What are you doing? And remember, it's not intuitive, right? But patience is not a muscle we flex very often. And so it takes a certain level of intentionality to stop, to pray, and say, God, what are you doing? This hurts. What are you doing? What are you doing? And if you don't show me, I'm going to trust you anyways. Because you did something when other people suffered. And I'm going to trust that you're doing something as I suffer. And I'm going to trust that you're going to come back for me. And I'm going to trust that suffering and pain will end. Death will be no more. I can't see it. I can't feel it. But God, I know you're working. And I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust that. You can be patient in suffering because God is in control. We're going to transition to a, a time of communion, and, and communion is something we do every week um, just as a reminder, as a symbol uh, of what Christ has done for us. I think about someone who exuded a whole lot of patience in their life amidst suffering. There's no one more than Christ. No one more than Christ. And so we take this as a reminder of, of the way he spilled his blood, the way he broke his body on the cross for us, and then rose from the dead. Uh, you can get up over the next song at any point and just head out those doors to take communion. We can't have food or drink in here. Um, and then come back in through those doors in the back. Um, this is the one part of service we ask that if you aren't a Christian, um, that you don't partake in this. Right? We think scripture is clear. This is something reserved only for Christians. But I want to encourage you to do something else instead. Ask God. What are you doing? I think if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's a reason you're here. You might not see it yet. But ask God, what are you doing? Even if you don't believe in God, maybe he'll surprise you. Maybe he'll show you. Uh, also encourage you, we've been doing this the past few weeks, um, if, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized yet, we're not going to uh, ask you not to take communion or anything like that, but we, we kind of view baptism as like the initiation right into the family. And then communion is kind of this family ritual, family act. And so again, uh, we're not going to totally make you not take communion, but just think about that. Think about what it looks like to be baptized. And if you're interested in that, you can, you can mark your connection card. You can talk to uh, anyone in the, uh, that's going to be at the back welcome table. Let's pray. God, we too often try to short-circuit your plans by being impatient. We too often try to avoid looking for you in the hard spaces in the difficult circumstances. So God, even in the middle of those things, I pray that you give us the ability to be patient. God, to trust that you're working 
to trust that you're in control. God, comfort those that are suffering in here right now in ways that are obvious, in ways that aren't so obvious. May we look to you. In your name we pray and ask these things. Amen.